This program is brought to you by Emory University. And the subject of today's talk, 24-6, a prescription for a healthy, healthier and happier life. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sleeth. It's, it's great to be back here, but I can get whiplash in this place. It's like watching a tennis match. You're so widely dispersed here. Is there, any, is there any theology or politics to who sits on which side of the room here? No. <clears throat> yes, we, we need to start a centrist movement uh, here. It's, it's great to be back. Raise your hand if you're a student. Okay. And raise your hand if you're staff, okay? And raise your hand if you're faculty, okay? Thank you. That gives me some idea who's who's here. Uh, the I apologize in in advance. Did you get the wrong sandwich? You threw your hands up there, so I will get to the right one if you. Um, <clears throat> I uh, apologize in advance if I make any theologic mistakes. Uh, I'm, I'm not trained as you are. I wished I had uh, the time to embark on seminary education. And if I live to be uh, 85 or so, that's when I'm going to start. I want to be the oldest seminary graduate in the United States. I can't, I can't get anything from being the youngest. I've passed that. But perhaps I'll be the oldest uh, at any time. Last time I was here, I talked about the environment and creation care. How many of you heard any of that? So several, several of you did. Most of you didn't. Uh, for those of you who weren't there, I'll just tell you that I only became a Christian about 12 years ago. So my, my understanding of the faith is much newer probably than many of you here. And again, if I make mistakes... Uh, forgive me. Uh, my training is in medicine, and uh, how many of you are involved in some part of the Methodist Church? Everybody, practically. No, no, no. I'm Reformed. <laughs> what? You're, okay. Uh, for those those of you who are in the Methodist Church, there's a precedent for what I'm doing, and that uh, for being a physician who talks about the Bible and theology. theology. Does anybody know what it is? The precedent is that you had somebody who was a preacher who, when they were 45 years old, without any accreditation, uh, hung up a shingle and practiced medicine, published a medical textbook, which was this person's best-selling book, which was in continual publication for 148 years. I have a 250-year-old copy of it. I guess I don't actually anymore. I just sent it off to Garrett because they didn't have a copy of it. And I thought that Garrett, uh, being a Methodist school, should have a copy of it. Anybody know who I'm talking about? John Wesley, yes. He practiced medicine. He changed the face of medicine the thing I'm astounded by is that I think it's one of his most amazing accomplishments and nobody talks about it in the church. And the amazing accomplishment was that when he came onto the scene, a church didn't care about sick people unless you were Catholic. There were Catholic hospitals and Catholic uh, missions of, of medical mercy, but when Henry VIII took over the church in England, he closed all the hospitals. And the church got out of the sick business, really, until John Wesley came along. Uh, and because he was so successful, and then in the United States here, and I'm sure we have Wesley scholars here, and you can correct me on this, but the first religious hospitals started in the United States were a group of 14 Methodist hospitals. And as a result, eventually there were Baptist and Presbyterian hospitals and that sort of thing. And now nobody knows or cares because everybody thinks that it's everyone's business to take care of sick people. And so if he, John Wesley can practice medicine without a license, I'm going to preach without one, okay? <laughs> so there's a precedent for this. 
I want to talk about uh, the Sabbath today, and, uh, and I want to connect it first to the subject of creation care, because I'm known as a creation care person. Creation care is uh, somewhat linked to the environmentalism in that uh, it, it, it concerns itself with the natural world and the state of the natural world, but it's a little bit more than that. Creation care, how many of you are familiar with that term? Yeah, it implies there's a creator, first of all, and that everything that the creator made is something that we have responsibility for. So, as, as you read the first creation account in Genesis 1, everything that God makes is a little more complicated as every day goes along, correct? Um, and so, uh, God creates light, I suppose, first, yeah, but there aren't any stars or sun yet, right? Anybody know what color all the rabbis of old thought the light was? Green. You're right. That's where you get your ordinal days of the year, the green days. And this comes from a rabbinic tradition that that light was green. I think it's fascinating. Has anybody ever undone adhesive tape in a dark closet? In a dark room? Your eyes have to be adjusted. The photons that jump back and forth are green. You can do all adhesive tapes do this. You just have to have your eyes dark enough. And there's this kind of green luminance that they thought it was. I'm getting off track here. So, God makes light, and then he makes planet, and that sort of thing. The first living thing that God makes is what? Trees. Trees. I love trees. Um, I'm writing a book on the theology of trees. Uh, and you can have me back for another lecture about the theology of trees sometime. It's very fascinating. And, uh, and, and when God makes these things, he says it's good, right? And then God makes, uh, every, every day something's more complicated, and, and then he makes, he makes Adam, he makes man on day six, and because it's more complicated, what does he make next? You're, you're following me here, yeah, he makes Eve. <coughs> Everything gets better as it goes along, and God says, very good, right? When he gets through, this is creation here. And on day seven, God has more work to do. God does not finish his work on day six. He, he finishes his work on day seven. And the work and the thing that God made on day seven is the Sabbath. Uh, and, uh, and the Sabbath is not good, and it's not very good. It's what? Holy. Correct. First time that word shows up in Scripture... And the only time it's going to be used for hundreds of years, it's in relationship to rest. And you see in there the first mathematical principle brought up in the Bible. It's called the transitive property. It's a really interesting literary device that's used, um, which we call a, a syllogism uh, most of the time in English classes. And that is that if A equals B and B equals C, then by definition, C has to equal A. So if God is holy and God rests, we know that rest is holy. And it's a very purposeful uh, literary device and a mathematical device that's used in describing the Sabbath. So that's kind of the theory behind it. That's where it starts. Uh, this this talk, I think, is titled something like How to Not Burn Out, something like that. <clears throat> okay. I'll get there eventually. Uh, I know about burnout. I've been a physician. I got into medical school after two and a half years of undergraduate. My daughter finished two degrees in undergraduate when she was 19. My daughter was a Val Victorian of Georgetown when she was 19. My son graduated as the youngest med school graduate. Uh, from University of Kentucky. Our family knows about working hard, all right? So I'll get there, but let me do the theory a little bit longer. So just for my purposes, how many of you keep a Sabbath once a week? Raise your hand. 
So I'm actually going to count. One. Okay, so I'm thinking a quarter. Is my math right? Something like that? A quarter. That's a pretty high percentage in the church. Uh, one of the things that our organization, Blessed Earth, does is work with Methodist clergy in the state of North Carolina. And we have a, a great resources to work with them. And we have a group, a cohort of about 2,000. That 2,000, we have the resources of uh, the Duke uh, Endowment and uh, the uh, Clergy Health Initiative. And so I know what the pastor's cholesterol uh, is, and I know what the pastor's um, rate of depression and anxiety and body mass index and all kinds of stuff. And when we started working with them, uh, less than 10% kept the Sabbath on a regular basis. And it's an unhealthy group. It's uh, less healthy than this, the average population, both from a physical point of view and from an emotional point of view. So <clears throat> you're, you're doing better than average in this room. Uh, so the Sabbath. When I was a kid, this was a societal default. I'm about 60 years old. So when I was a kid, this is just what everybody did. Where I grew up, you couldn't, um, you couldn't buy anything. I couldn't buy, I, I couldn't buy because I didn't have any money when I was a kid. Uh, you couldn't buy gasoline. You couldn't buy uh, milk. You couldn't buy medicine groceries, zero. Everything was closed. Uh, there was only one business open on Sundays. Church. <laughs> that was it. And uh, I grew up in dairy farming country, and you have to milk cows seven days a week. You get no choice. Uh, and so we would milk, but if your hay was down and raked and turned and dry and you got the weather wrong, uh, you would let your hay be ruined before you would, you would bail. Is this sound working okay? It seems to fade in and out. Okay. So that's what I grew up with. How many of you grew up in that kind of setting? Raise your hand. Very few. Very few. Uh, and, but, but that's the way the world has been for a couple thousand years. So we are involved in the greatest experiment, and I don't think it's going to go well. And that experiment is that we've decided to un untether ourselves from the Sabbath. Uh, and uh, this, this Sabbath has um, gone missing in one generation. There is no societal change that I think that is large as the loss of the Sabbath. Uh, so, <clears throat> how many of you have, do you have a class on this Sabbath? Yeah. Uh, Sabbath is the real estate in time in which the church has existed. The church is dying. Every statistic points in that direction. The church is dying. You, do you think there could be any correlation between giving up the lease on the piece of real estate that the church had and the fact that it's dying? I think there is. <laughs> um, this, the Sabbath has gone missing. And there, our entire educational system is about seeing new things. That's all you're trained how to do. That's all I was trained how to do. See new things. New is good. New is better. How many of you have had a class on how to see what's missing? You haven't. It's of no use. But it's really useful. It's really useful in looking at the Bible. The the book after the next one that I write, not the one I'm currently writing, but the, next, the, thir the third one will be what's not in the Bible. Think about just something that's not in the Bible that's totally a foundation 
of the world that the Bible's written in. Pick a testament, old or new. Old Testament. What is the what is the society forming activity of the Assyrians? What is the society forming activity of the royalty of the Babylonians, of the Egyptians? It's the hunt, is it not? Haven't you seen the art? It's all about the hunt, the royal hunt. Is there a hunt in the Bible? Missing. What, what's, are Egyptians mad about pets? They're mad about them. Are Americans mad about pets? We will spend more on, on Christmas presents for dogs in this country than many countries will have to spend on all their health care. We're mad about it. What is the pet in the Bible? Missing. <laughs> Completely there in society. In Egypt, you're getting your, 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 your cats embalmed. And it's not there. I could go on and on and on. It's very important to look at what's not there sometime. I learned this concept first in medical school. This is a chest x-ray. Everybody know what a chest x-ray is? Okay, it's a chest x-ray. This was bread and butter for me. And I saw a chest x-ray that talks about this concept of looking for things that aren't there uh, when I was a third year medical student. And it was, uh, this is not the exact chest x-ray, but this is one that's like it. And a woman had come through the emergency department at, uh, in our hospital the night before. And this is a good hospital. This is George Washington University Hospital. And, uh, and uh, she had had uh, minor symptoms, a cough, and they did a chest x-ray on her, and they discharged her as having nothing wrong. And the docs at night read the x-ray that looked just like this one and said it looks fine. And the docs the next morning in the radiology department read it. And then the chief of the department was reviewing x-rays really fast and caught what was wrong on here. There's a reason why he was the chief of the department. <laughs> because when your, your education and your training and mine is to look for something that, that's new, something that's there that's not supposed to be there. And so they gave me a laser beam. Is this the coolest thing or what? Um, and so. You, you, look for, uh, you, you would look for, like, if there's a tumor there. If you saw a bullet, it's new, it doesn't belong. If you saw a knife, it's new, and it doesn't belong. You can make your diagnosis. You see an infiltration, you see fluid fill up, you see a tumor there. You're looking for stuff that's new. What's wrong with this x-ray is that there's something missing. And the head of the department said, I'm going to call that lady and have her come back in because I think she's got cancer. And, and what's missing is the left clavicle, the collarbone. See, there's one there. That's that ghost outline there. And over here, there isn't one. And it was most likely eaten away by cancer. And so what was missing was incredible importance. Let me, let me tell you uh, how, how in medicine, even though we're kind of trained to look for something missing, how this gets by. I showed this chest x-ray to a large group in North Carolina uh, about a year ago, and a couple came up afterwards, and the woman said, I'm a pediatrician. I knew there was something you were getting at with that chest x-ray, but I couldn't find what was wrong. But I'm a pediatrician. I have an excuse. My husband, and she literally elbowed him, has no excuse. He's a radiologist, and he couldn't figure it out. Um, the point being is that it's very difficult to tune in on something that's missing, and what's going missing is the Sabbath in society. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not important, and it's not a matter of life and death, actually. Um, Sabbath is based on this commandment. This is the longest commandment in the Bible. Uh, it's the longest commandment in the Ten Commandments, and uh, it's the only one that begins with the word remember. Anybody know what the uh, Hebrew equivalent of remember is? Okay, we'll just go in English then. Um, let's read it together. Can we do that? All right, the word of the Lord. Let's read together. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, it's funny because I said all the things I couldn't do or we didn't do on Sunday because that's where for Christians the day is landed on the Sabbath commandment we land on Sunday or the Lord's Day. Uh, we couldn't buy anything, etc. And yet, I have memories of Sunday growing up and I have no distinct memory of a Monday or a Tuesday from my entire childhood. None. I have memories of Sunday. Uh, you're a really young group, so this is going to be a little hard. But I want you to do something for a couple minutes. I want you, if you had something different on Sunday, or if you do now, to share your best memories of Sunday when you were growing up. What did you do on that day that was different? What did you refrain from doing that made it a good day? What do you remember? If you have no memories of Sunday growing up that are different than the other days of the week, then there is a premium on people with gray hair or no hair to get with them and listen to them. You have a few minutes to do this. Buddy up. One of those people who raised their hands that keeps the Sabbath. Uh, if you need to, get around one of those. I'll give you a few minutes Everybody's through with their sandwiches. Go ahead and share for a couple minutes. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you, and uh, and I listened in on one group, uh, and I'd like some uh, some things that people did. Uh, how just from the one group, I'll I'll ask the themes. How many of you uh, went to church on Sunday? That's pretty good. Uh, how many of you sang on that day? Uh, by the way, there's no other day of the week that people get together and sing. Doesn't happen any other day. Uh, how many of you uh, remember meals with family? That was a big theme over here. Uh, how many of you remember that you didn't shop on that day? Yeah, okay. How many of you took a nap on that day? Yes. <laughs> How many of you were made to take a nap on that day? Yes, okay. <clears throat> the commandments are not grouped randomly, the Ten Commandments. I don't know about the other 613. You know, of the 613 commandments given in uh, Scripture, uh, many of them have absolutely no application. A couple hundred of them have no application whatsoever because there's no temple. And some of them have uh, obscure applications because we don't live in an agrarian culture. There's a commandment of, you know, what to do if you loan him your ox and it, and it gores him. I hate it when that happens. But even in a big church, it's only like once a year at, at max. But if your dog bites him, uh, you're responsible that comes from that, that commandment. So some of them are obscure, but there are ten commandments that have always held a special place, and they apply to all people in all times and all places, really, and that's the way the church, both Hebrew and Christian, has thought of the ten commandments. Uh, and uh, they're not grouped by accident. Uh, I was just with all the healthcare worker 
kind of the higher ups and all the healthcare, um, not and, and all the school folks from the Catholic Church in the province of Saskatchewan, and three of the bishops, and teaching on this for a couple of days. And so, do you know that Catholics number the commandments differently than than most Protestants? Um, so I had to ask to be excused if I got if I referred to it by the fourth commandment. For our purposes, I'll refer to the Sabbath commandment as the fourth. Uh, that's the way the Jews numbered it. Augustine changed it. Um, but I'll go, with, I'll go with the Jews because uh, they own the real estate first. So the, the Ten Commandments are really not grouped randomly at all. Uh, commandment number one, I'm the Lord your God, you'll have no other gods above you, is a commandment about God, is it not? It's how we're supposed to understand God. So I'm going to put all the God commandments over here on this side of the room. Uh, commandment number uh, two, you don't, don't make any uh, graven images, idols, etc. of me. And commandment number three is that to call on the Lord's name is such a precious thing and a privilege that to do so frivolously is a sin. So those are all commandments about God. Agree? You agree. Good. They're over there about God. Commandments 5 through 10 are commandments about us. They're what makes civilization civilized. Uh, honor your parents. Uh, don't kill, lie, cheat, steal, run around, put stuff on your credit card to keep up with your neighbors. I'm paraphrasing. It says thou shall not put stuff on your credit card. So those are commandments about humans. They don't apply to God, do they? Um, the fourth commandment and the longest commandment uh, belongs in which category? God or human? Both, correct. Quick students. It's very bright students you hear, have here, okay? They belong in both. They are actually a bridge between heaven and earth. The Sabbath commandment is the only commandment, and I've got scholars here, tell me if I'm wrong, which God specifically applies to God. So that makes it really special. And God walks out onto this bridge, and we walk out onto it, and we meet each other. And that's the way it's always been. And people who've wanted to blow the bridge, and by the way, military strategy, if you want to totally disable a country, you blow its bridges, right? Uh, people who've wanted to blow the bridge have known that. And so and during the French Revolution, for instance, uh, they wanted to get rid of God and King. King is pretty easy. You take his head off, he tends to stop talking. Um, but in order to get rid of the church, you have to get rid of the Sabbath. And so they knew that, and they got rid of the Sabbath. And they moved to a 10-day week with no, no Sunday on it, no Sabbath. The, the architects of the Russian Revolution understood this, knew their history, and so they wanted to get rid of, of the church and God as well. And so they uh, adopted a five-day calendar with no Sabbath or Sunday on it. And this Russia lived for years on a calendar different. You see, because there's no inherent solar thing that makes a seven-day week. It's a totally arbitrary, if you will, arrangement. It doesn't sync up with any, any celestial uh, event. Um, the memories that you had, by the way, are the commandments. <laughs> We went to church. We sang. God came first. We had meals with our family. It's the number one thing that people remember from Sundays. We had meals together as a family. Is that not honor your parents? Is there anything parents would rather have than a meal with their kids? I'm a parent. I know that tops the list. Um, uh, you took a nap. You cannot kill by definition if you're taking a nap. All right? Do not commit adultery. It's a very interesting exercise to go back and look at particularly Puritan sermons because I think this is really where they put it together 
I mean, they came here for a reason, to exercise their faith. And so something gets invented, and that is the after-church nap. And to help it along, the lock on the bedroom door. It's a, it's a New England tradition. You see where I'm going with this. You're laughing. And uh, hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you a film. Here, here, will you catch this? <laughs> you catch it and give it to her. There we go. Um, I'll tell you why. Um, so they put the lock on the door. Has anybody ever been to like a place in Europe, uh, like the um, like the museum in Florence that the Medici's owned, or a castle, or anything like that? No doors on the bedrooms. <laughs> you can go to you can go to the palace, Buckingham Palace. There's no doors on the bedrooms. The door in the lock is a New England tradition that has to do with the sermons where they exhorted people to go home and put the kids in bed and uh, to exercise connubial bliss time or whatever. I can't go any further than that. Some of you aren't married. So here's the point. If you ask people why they get divorced, and we live in a, the highest divorce rate time since maybe the time of Christ. Um, it's, it's extraordinary, the numbers now. And just like Jesus, and Jesus dealing with that woman and asking her about marriage, you aren't even married to the one you're living with now. And so the statistics aren't valid anymore because you don't enter into marriage before you get divorced. Um, so we're in the same situation that Christ encountered. Um, but if you ask people why they get divorced, and you ask them a couple years after it happens, because while it's happening, they'll tell you because the dog or snoring or they're mean to me, or ask them a couple years later, and almost everybody says we drifted apart. We went, we went in different directions. One moment, madly in love, stuffing cake in each other's mouths, getting their names tattooed on each other's rear ends. And the next, it takes the lawyers to separate them. And nobody says, I wonder if they had enough Sabbaths. Um, one, of the, one of the things I threw you that tape uh, the CDD, CD for is, there are books and there are CDs up here. And I think Laura sent down a, you can contribute for them, but your students, you don't have to, you can just take them. If you don't have time to read the book, watch the film. If you don't have time to watch the film, Watch the extras on the film. The conversation with Eugene Peterson is better than all the rest of it. But there's one, and there's a conversation with David Green, who owns Hobby Lobby. There's a conversation with Mark DeMoss here in Atlanta, who owns the DeMoss Group. Anybody know what that is? It's the largest Christian PR firm in the world or whatever. Uh, and he and I, are, and they have a sabbatical practice, and they're voted like Atlanta's best place to work for and everything. And he and I were talking, and he was remembering what happened on Sundays and everything. And he said, man, it's, it, we took naps every Sunday. And it was amazing. My dad make a, made us take naps until we were like eight. And it hit him what was going on. And he got all red in the face. <laughs> so we cut that out of the film. But <laughs> some people, it takes a long time to put those dots together. Um, uh, so the, the Sabbath is important for all the things that happen on the other of the Ten Commandments. Uh, when you ask me questions, and we're going to leave time for question and answer, and it's the only part that's really fun for me. And the better your question, the more fun it is for me. Um, you, you, can ask, you can ask about these other commandments and how they connect in. Um, but... Uh, we're, we're losing all the other commandments because we're losing the bridge between them here. Uh, Sabbath, here's how it's going to keep you from burning out. I, I have had a privilege that you, you probably, you may have had a couple people here to talk, but very few people in the church get. I've had a privilege that I've been allowed into the church across the bandwidth of the church. I've, I get to preach in mega churches, in micro churches, reformed churches, 
Arminian churches. I just was with a, a group of Catholics. It's across the whole bandwidth. I preached for a year at the National Cathedral as, as a guest preacher there. Um, and I've met a lot of pastors. And I've met ones that are really good at what they do in public and not so good running on steam in private. And I've met ones that are like the real McCoys, the Eugene Petersons. Have you had him here to talk? You can't get him anymore. He won't travel anymore. But um, So I get to peek behind the curtain. And the pastors that keep Sabbath are a different breed. It is really hard to be a professional pastor who doesn't believe in what you're preaching. And you are destined to burn out if you do that. Um, the work of pastoring is really hard. And it's harder today than it was 50 years ago because there's less and less um, uh, social capital that goes along with being a, a pastor. Uh, nobody goes, wow, you're going to be a pastor. They're more excited if you're going to be a football player or run a business or something. We're less concerned with things eternal in society now. And so you're entering into really hard work if you're going into ministry, whether you're in a pulpit or some other kind of ministry. You're entering into hard work. And you will burn out if you go on your own juice. You will, just, you will not make it. You might be a professional and be able to do it. I was a professional doctor, which meant I took care of people even when I couldn't stand their guts sometimes. And at three in the morning when they're drunk and puking on you and yelling at you, you have to be a professional. And it's the same thing in ministry. You have to put up with people who are difficult. But it's oh so much better if you've really got a fire under you <laughs> all the time. And the, the Sabbath naturally does that. Uh, for folks. Um, that's, that's my observation of the church in a, in a position where most people don't get to observe it. Sabbath gives meaning to life. How is God talking to you? What is God saying? The Sabbath gives me the time to deconstruct that. And the Sabbath I've kept for over a decade. And uh, it has become the most precious thing in my religious life. Um, if you made me choose between the Bible and Sabbath, I'd have a hard time. I think I'd give up. I'd read it and try to memorize as much as I could, and I'd take the Sabbath over it. Because the Sabbath is where I meet God. And this is really important stuff. And um, the Sabbath gives uh, meaning to life. I have a joke. My wife... My daughter and I are all, all are authors of books. I think we have like seven or eight between us and, and hundreds of articles. And so, and my wife is an English teacher by profession and uh, my uh, daughter has a degree in English. And so, you know, punctuation is important in our house. So you've seen this joke, the importance of pauses. Let's eat grandmother, lovely invitation cannibalism. You know, pauses are, are life and death. Um, I say that as a joke, but it's a reality. Musicians say that it's not the notes, but the pauses in between them that make music. And your life that you're going into can either be music or it can be like a paper my wife got from a student at the beginning of a semester. It was a diagnostic paper. And he turned in a three-page paper, and it didn't have an indentation, a comma, a semicolon, a paragraph, a period, nothing. It was a three-page run-on sentence. Your life can be like that paper, or you can punctuate it. And uh, the Sabbath was, was uh, meant for punctuating it. John Wesley was interested in medicine. By the way, has anybody here read primitive physics? Parts of it. Uh, if you read it, some of it seems naive. <laughs> uh, the cure for breast cancer, the cure for 
um, baldness, etc. It seems naive. Um, and yet, there's some profound insights that he has. John Wesley was uh, a brilliant guy. And he cared about people's health. Um, because there were only 18 physicians graduating from Oxford and Cambridge at the time Wesley was in business. And all of those went to wealthy people. Right now, one of the number one concerns of all the people that you were ministered to is time. They're out of time. <clears throat> if you type in time management in a Google search bar, you'll get three to four times the number of results that you'll get if you type in God. The world is not interested in God at the moment. They're interested in time because they've run out of it. My parents went to the World's Fair in 1968. I remember it because they didn't take me. I was being punished for something. But my other brothers and sisters got to go. But I got to be with my grandma and that was even better. And uh, my mom came back and we were in a rural area and uh, so we were a little behind at times. But my mom talked about this invention that they had at the 1968 World's Fair that was going to save us so much time. It was a rotary dial phone. I mean, it was a push-button phone. Because all we had were rotary dials. Do you remember these? Have you ever seen one? Go to the museum. Check it out. <laughs> and they actually timed people. And all, they made all of them dial their home numbers, and they, they timed, and they just showed that we would have so much extra time on our hands by the time we hit that miraculous age in the future, the year 2000, that we wouldn't know what to do with it. Is anybody experiencing that in your life? In fact, you have less and less and less time. How many of you are actually frustrated by the lack of kind of quality time that you have? Yeah, it's a universal. The church becomes relative when it ministers to the needs of people. And right now, this answer can't come from anywhere else. It, it has to come from us. There is no government committee that will come up with the Sabbath. There's no scientific committee. Although I will tell you this. Um, we are a sicker and sicker country. Uh, we are the most depressed country in the Western world. You've heard of that statistic? More people in America are depressed than any other Western country. One out of 10 uh, people needs an antidepressant now on a regular basis to get through the day. When I was a medical student, we learned about depression. We didn't have the drugs available now they didn't have Prozac and that whole class of SSRIs. So to put somebody on an antidepressant was a much more serious affair when I was first learning this. The drugs had much, much bigger side effects. And so you really weighed the pros and cons. And one of the, one of the things about depression was that people would always cycle out of it in three months if you didn't treat them. And so you put that into your equation. Well, can you tough it out for three months? Because you'll get better. Guess what? People aren't cycling out of this anymore. It just goes on and on. Why? What's different about the depression that people are experiencing now than they were experiencing 30 years ago? Um, I think John Wesley would be really interested in that question. Well, one of the one of the things that happens is if you never know when your next break is coming, does anybody here know when you're really going to get to relax again? Christmas. Yeah, you're looking forward to it, right? <laughs> Guess what? When you're pastors, that's the busiest time that there is. Okay? So, um, so many people that are outside of an academic calendar have no idea when they're really going to get to relax again. When you're always under stress, and I would maintain that we are now, um, your body begins to try to cope with it. And the first thing you do is start making drugs um, that are in the class of drugs called uh, catecholamines. 
I'm sorry, I can't think of a non-medical word. Um, like adrenaline, the fight or flight drugs. Has anybody here ever had a shot of epinephrine? You had an allergic reaction, right? What'd you eat, shellfish or eggs or what? Tree nuts. Tree nuts. And you had to get a shot of adrenaline because you were gonna die, right? You were like swelling up and you couldn't breathe and it saved your life, right? And then you felt like a truck hit you three hours later. Yeah, they never told you about that in the ER, did they? <laughs> I didn't tell people either. Um, you, you feel like a truck hits you because these drugs kind of will juice you up and save you short term but if you keep doing it all the time it begins to have some long-term effects when you're under stress week after week after week your body begins to make a set of drugs uh, called the stress steroids and they're trying to help you cope with stress long term but they have a downside steroids are not good right you've heard that the stress steroids have a downside if you give them long term if i were to give you stress steroids on a regular basis you would get anxiety you would get depression you would get heart disease etc and so if you look now and people are doing that and that's part of what we're doing with those 2000 pastors in methodist pastors in north carolina um, when you give people the Sabbath, they get healthier, and when you take it away, they get sicker. Um, so it's a matter of your health, too. Um, sh should I stop and ask for questions? No. Keep going? You liking this? Oh, I never know. You're almost like a bunch of Presbyterians in here. I haven't heard one amen. Um, or that'll preach or nothing. Okay. Um, <clears throat> hold on here. Okay. This next slide reminds me, before we talk about the nuts and bolts of Sabbath, I have the same theology that John Wesley had. First, do no harm. He adopted that from his medical stuff. And first, do no harm is a kind of uh, theology that's somewhat unique to Methodists, wouldn't you say? Don't, don't do any harm. So, the, so I'm going to tell you how you can do harm with the Sabbath. Because as we get to Jesus coming along, we'll see that there's harm that's been done with the uh, Sabbath. This is my daughter in January. Um, she's not playing dress up. She got married that day. Oh, wow. What a great day. for If any of you are dads here, you don't know what a great day it is for your daughter to get married to a decent guy who's done everything right. It's fantastic. But I'm going to use my daughter to illustrate um, a principle of the, work, the downside of the Sabbath, which is legalism. Does anybody know what I mean by the term legalism? Yeah. Legalism is when you know the rule, but you don't know why the rule exists. And all of us go through a legalistic stage in our child development uh, where we're concrete thinkers. Uh, we know not to run out in the road, but, but we're not even quite sure why. You, we know you'll die or whatever. This is my daughter at the legalistic stage of life. Um, she's not really quite clear on all the rules of life. She knows that people make that face when they swing, but she doesn't know to pull on the string yet, okay? And she's trying to swing there, and she can't really get it to go. So, so she makes the face harder. <laughs> and she's not going, all right? And, uh, and, and her at this stage illustrates the legalistic uh, thinking. And she has a brother who's two years older than her. Anybody have an older brother or sister? Anyone, that older brother or sister ever push your buttons? Yeah, he would push your buttons. He had personally installed them over the first couple years of her life and he knew where all of them were. And one day, he must have pushed one of those buttons because he came running through the kitchen screaming, Dad, Dad, it was trying to bite and hit me. Stop her, she's trying to bite and hit me. And he was really kind of terrified. And he ran out the screen door, you know, no faith that I could stop her, running through the yard. And along comes my daughter, and she's running as fast as her little legs would carry her. And I'm saying, Emma, stop, stop, stop. 
nothing. I'm not registering at all with her. So I just scooped her up off the floor, and I'm holding her right here, and she was still running, like a little cartoon character. And I said, Emma, what are you doing trying to bite and hit your brother? And it was like a bolt hit her. And she stared, and she looked me in the face, the look of the unjustly accused. And she said, I am not trying to bite and hit him. I am just trying to bite him. That's legalism, okay? So I use that because I want to look at Christ and the Sabbath for a moment. Because Christ is always dealing with legalism. People who get the rules, nobody understood the rules better than the Pharisees. They'd all been to school. They knew the rules. But they didn't get the point behind the rules. The love. And so... Jesus comes along, and he's having to deal with this all the time. And Jesus is, it's, it's an unending sermon on the point behind the rules. That's Jesus' life. Jesus says, it's not good enough just not to kill. Don't be angry, because it'll rot your soul out to be angry. Jesus says, it's not good enough not to it's not commit adultery. Don't surf the internet looking for stuff that will rot your soul. And so Christ is always getting at the intent of things. Sabbath being the largest of the Ten Commandments. Jesus really goes at this again and again and again. Jesus does a majority of his miracles on the Sabbath. It's not an accident. And he does seven of them. And it's not an accident. And as a setup for this, in Luke 4, Matthew is, that's that, that's that point where uh, Jesus goes to the, his childhood synagogue. Now it's clear he hasn't been there in a while, right? Because they don't know what he's going to do. And he hasn't been there, and they have a memory of him, because he was the hotshot bar mitzvah boy. Most people, they just want to be able to get their haftorah out and not stumble on the bima or whatever, Oh man, he could go toe-to-toe with the teachers. Um, so they know he's a hotshot. They know he knows the rules. And now they want to see what comes of it. And he reads from Isaiah, and you're familiar with this, that he's there to proclaim this wonderful thing. He's there to proclaim that the captives are going to be free, the blind are going to see, everything's going to change. Why? He's there to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. You guys use the NRSV mainly, right? And that, that trans... Pardon? Okay, and that probably translated the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord is the Jubilee year. Um, I, 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 I like the translations that just go ahead and translate Jubilee year because <laughs> you know what he's talking about. And everybody here is familiar with the Jubilee year. Every seven days, the Sabbath. Every seven years, a sabbatical year. Every seven sets of seven years, uh, the Jubilee year. It is a Jubilee year, by the way, in Israel right now. Um, and, uh, and so uh, he's there to declare that. And he's... Um, people are kind of lackluster, and he sits down. You remember the scene. And they want to know what he thinks about it. And what does he say? It's come true today. The Jubilee year has finally arrived. I'm it. When you reread the New Testament, think of this. Jesus is declaring himself the Sabbath. He is the master of it. And you're not meant to save the Sabbath. He, it, is there to save you. That's, the, that's the, uh, what he's telling you. And he does seven of his miracles on the Sabbath. And what's interesting is they are not walk on water. They're not feed 5,000. They're not sticking the ear back on. They all, well, sticking the ear back on might qualify a little bit. They're all about healing. He's getting at the intent of the Sabbath. It's to heal us. Uh, I just um, invite you to do, I won't, I won't do it here, but... I'll, I'll only mention two of his miracles. Well, his first miracle is to throw a demon out in the synagogue or in the church. So you won't have any application for that in ministry. 
practicing pastors really break up on that one. Um, you know, it's said that Jesus' miracles ramp up as he goes along in his life. Have you heard that? Have you been taught that? You know, up into a resurrection, right? You know, start small, making, making good wine, um, works up. But I'd like to look just for one second at his second miracle, which most people pass over as a pretty minor miracle. And his second miracle on the Sabbath is that he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that? She's got a fever, and he goes in, and he touches her, and she gets up and she serves him. I have had a Jewish mother-in-law for 35 years until I uh, lost her a year ago to death. Um, and I will tell you that if you quit your job, and Peter's job has a franchise even, and you follow a guy who says that you're going to make no money, and eventually you'll get your head cut off or something, and you can make your mother, that guy's mother-in-law, get up and serve you, that is probably the major miracle in the Bible from my experience. So, <clears throat> the last I, I'd like to, it's uh, Luke 14. I won't go into it a lot now, but Luke 14 is the um, healing of the man with dropsy, and that takes place at a Sabbath banquet. They, they partied on the Sabbath. They just had to get the food done beforehand because he's there at a banquet, and it's a Sabbath banquet. Uh, and and then, then he gives that little soliloquy about the invitation to the banquet. That's about Sabbath. <laughs> Reread it. All modern Bibles break things into chapters. Take, erase that in your mind and go through as it was meant to be read. The whole chunk is about Sabbath. And reread it. So, um, what do I do on my Sabbath? I'll tell you, and then you can ask me all the questions you want, and you can ask anything you want. And the better your question, the bigger the reward. Um, we even have free A's for classes in Greek and... Uh, no, never mind. Um, uh, what do I do on my Sabbath? Uh, I have to move my Sabbath. It's the least ideal of all. Um, and we have to block it out on a calendar for f four months in advance. As pastors... You'll have to move yours too. Um, what's, the, what's the precedent for doing that in Scripture? Uh, I think it's in Second Chronicles chapter 30. Um, Hezekiah has to reboot the Passover. Read that chapter. It applies so much to trying to reboot the uh, Sabbath in a modern time. And they get the date wrong. The leadership of the church has fallen asleep totally at the switch. And so it has to come from outside of the church. And the Sabbath, by the way, is coming from outside the church. It's business and people like that that are beginning to wake up to it. Um, and yet, once there's an invitation to it, the people in the church get, get the idea that it's good to go ahead and sanctify themselves and that sort of thing. Um, they have to keep it in the second month. Um, and this is in the, in the uh, calendar of uh, their liturgical calendar, not their civil calendar. So it's, uh, they're supposed to keep Passover in Nisan, um, which is the first month in the liturgical calendar. Um, but they missed it. And so they move it. But they pray, and they sanctify themselves, and the Lord blesses this. And I think this will happen in the church, because how do we do Sabbath in the 21st century? You're going to have to move it around, like I do on my calendar especially if you're in the clergy. Um, and uh, the one thing is that the definition of work has really changed over time. Uh, is, going, is running a marathon work? Yeah. Uh, if, you, if, you, um, if you took one of those slaves coming out of uh, Egypt uh, with Moses and um, you brought them to an office building on Monday morning in Atlanta or in this building, and you took them and showed them a staff under either air conditioning or a heating vent, sitting in a padded chair, um, cup of coffee, looking at a bright screen, and said, here comes the work, depressing a key through no resistance and, and, and an eighth of an inch, and said, wow, that person's really working. They would have said, give me some of that work. 
But if you took them here to Atlanta, you got to, do you have a marathon in July? Bet you do. Um, in my town, they've got, a, they've got fun runs in July and August. People running 5K and 100 degrees. And you said, they're playing. They would say, give me the work. <laughs> so it's really changed in context. So many people are sedate all week long. So going for a bike ride might be the most relaxing activity. The one thing that remains the same is commerce, though. Commerce is commerce. And, and so I think making somebody else work on that day, um, not a good idea. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.